All right, uh, good to be sharing God's Word with you this morning. Good to see everyone here. Uh, we're looking at Genesis chapter 42 this morning as we finish off this chapter and we continue our look at the life of Joseph. Special welcome once again to our visitors and uh, those who haven't been here before. We pray this, uh, this service is a blessing to you. Genesis chapter 42, and we'll read from verses 27 to 32 to start us off. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? And they came unto Jacob their father, unto the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us, and took us for spies of the country. And we said unto him, We are true men, we are no spies. We be twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is not, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Let's stop there and we'll, uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to commit uh, our time to him and to bless us. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this word. We just thank you for the preservation of it, for the recording of it, and Father, in the way, in the way your spirit teaches us through it. We just pray that once again, our hearts would be open to it, Lord, seeking to consume uh, this food which you have for us. Father, that we might grow, that we might be, uh, turned, be turned more into the image of your Son, that we would live lives that are more honouring to you. And we thank you once again, indeed, that we have this precious time to spend together to learn from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so for those of you who weren't here last week, we were, we're looking at the point where the famine has commenced in Egypt. The seven years of plenty have come and gone. And now we're beginning with seven years of famine. And there, we may have been second year probably into it. And at this point, the famine wasn't just restricted to Egypt. It actually entered into Canaan as well. So it was affecting uh, Jacob and his family. And so at this point, and we saw this last week, they were sort of in a bit of a quandary. What do they do? They were running out of food already. And so they had heard, or Jacob said that he had heard that there was food in e or grain in Egypt. And so he said to his sons, who were... Apparently, they're just looking at each other, not knowing what to do. He said, stop looking at each other and get down to Egypt because I've heard there's food down there. Go and buy us some grain and come back with it. And so he sent off all of his sons, except for Benjamin, the youngest one. And if you remember, Benjamin was the second child of Rachel. And he was, he was the only child of Rachel left to Jacob. So he didn't want to risk Benjamin's life. He sent the other boys off, though. Um, not a problem for them. So if you remember last week, the message, you'll recall that when they arrived to Egypt, who do they see selling the grain and, and organizing who's buying, you know, who gets what? And it was Joseph himself. But they didn't recognize him because Joseph was 20 years had passed. They didn't recognize their brother. He was dressed as an Egyptian, spake Egyptian. Um, and so when they arrived there, he recognized them immediately. And so did he welcome his, royal, his brothers with a royal red carpet? No. No, he gave them a good tongue lashing, okay, while they were there, calling them spies and liars, and they were there to spy on the land. 
and they, were, they got so rattled by this that they, they, by his demeanor, that they felt they had to share everything about where they were from to try and prove uh, that they were not spies. And they sort of told him details that you probably wouldn't say. Oh, we've, you know, we're the, we're the 12 sons of one father and he's back there and our youngest one is with him and one's passed away and, you know, we've only come to do this, that and the other. And so um, he rejected their testimony. He said, no, I don't believe you. And threw them in jail for three days. Okay, as you do. So... What do you do when you're in jail for three days and you're 10 brothers, you're just simmering? You're trying to ask, you probably ask yourself, how did we end up here? Like all we did was to come down to buy some food and how did we end up in such a mess? So, you know, and they had their family back at home who were running out of food and they'd had the responsibility to bring back that food and and now they've run into this guy with this really strange name. Does anyone know what he what his new name was without reading it, Alan? <laughs> Alan Quick. Zafnath Tania. Yes. So, so really like a, a long, interesting name. Zafnath Pania. And so what's this guy gonna do next? I mean, he when when they said he talked roughly to them, um, that means that he used some probably strong language. You know, he was nasty to them. And so for three days, they're probably racking their brains, trying to work out what they're going to do. Because his instruction to them was, when he threw them into custody, he said to them, I'm going to send out one of you back home. The rest of you are going to stay here. And then you better come back with your younger brother. But then he changed his mind when he went back to them three days later. But for three days, they're there trying to work out, what do we do? How, how are we going to explain this to dad? You know, that he's, he's demanding for Benjamin to be brought here because he gave him strict instructions. He was not going to send Benjamin to, uh, to there because he didn't want to risk his life. And so on top of this, you know, when people find themselves in bad situations, um, there's often a very strong incentive to start looking for someone to blame Right, So they're probably beginning to start looking for who they have to blame for this. And Reuben started this whole journey off in verse back in verse 21 when he said, I told you guys about what we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't have done that thing to Joseph. Now this, all this stuff is because of what we did to him. So he's already found, he's already started the ball rolling in this case, right? He's already telling them, this is your fault. See what you did? Even though he had also agreed to throw Joseph in the pit, the job was, he, the idea he had was while he was in the pit, he was, going, he was going to go eventually free him while they weren't looking. But before he got a chance to do that anyway, the Ishmaelites came along and said, oh, there's a guy in the pit. Why don't we take him and sell him? And they did. And so they sold him to the Midianites, apparently. So um, when the brothers got back to the pit, Joseph's gone. And so they came up with this whole story, taking his coat of many colors. They brought it back to their dad. They put, they put blood on the actual thing and they said, your son's being killed by a wild animal. But they themselves did not know what had happened to Joseph. And so if you go back to verse 21, Reuben gets upset with them and he says, and they said one to another, 
we are very, verily guilty concerning our brother. They carried this guilt with them for 20 years, okay? In that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would hear not? Therefore, behold, all his blood, also his blood is required. So Reuben, by the looks of it, had given up on the notion even that Joseph was even alive. Because he says his blood is on our hands. In other words, he probably, he was under the, uh, a fairly good assumption that, that, that Joseph may have been killed in the whole process. And it was, it was essentially all their fault. Has anyone ever seen an episode of The Apprentice? Okay. Um, so you'll know, for those of you who know that particular game, and I haven't seen many episodes of it, but what I remember, there, it, it, there are two teams that are pitted against each other, and they have a certain task to try to do, and then whoever the, the winning team is gets to keep all their members, but then the losing team has to, they, they have to get rid of one, right? So they, they get voted off. And so inevitably, what happens with the losing team um, is when they fail, when they come off second, and they have to lose a member, what ends up happening to that team? They turn on each other. They start blaming each other. Oh, it was your fault. It was your fault. And that is an interesting thing when you look at it, because the brothers, no doubt, would have been in a similar situation. They found themselves by their own bad judgment, by their own choices, they found themselves in this situation and they're saying, okay, now, who, who do we blame for this whole thing? Reuben started the ball rolling. I told you guys. And no doubt, during three days of being stuck together, there would have been some strong opinions about whose fault it was that they were in this particular place. Um, but this is a function of the flesh. Do you see that? This is what the flesh actually does. When one seeks to blame others for the circumstances in their own life, this is the result of fallen nature. When things go wrong, people, the first thing people normally do is not blame themselves. They go looking for someone else to blame. It's someone else's reason. It's, it's, it's someone else's fault that I am in the predicament that I am in. But it's interesting because scripture does not give us room for that. It doesn't give us room to blame other people for, for our own predicament or for even for the circumstances that we are in, even if they made a decision that affected us. Go to, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 for a moment. Because this is the difference between being a mature believer and being an immature believer. Now, Colossians 3.13 says that we are to be forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, do also, do also, so also do ye. Now, let me see how, how thoroughly this thing covers this thing. We are to forbear one another, forgive one another. If how many men have a quarrel? Yes. If any man have a quarrel against 
How many? Any. So if you've got a quarrel against anyone, and that includes any of us, the Bible says we are to forgive them even as Christ forgave us. Now that is, that is a lesson that, that every believer should learn in their life. Because that lesson will change the way that you live completely. It will change your outlook on life. It will change your, your hope. It will change your relationships with other people. And if you're ever in doubt about the fact that we are to carry one another's weaknesses, this verse says it. You see, that word forbearing, you can forgive someone if they've done something wrong to you, right? But this says to carry them, to forbear them. That means a patient self-control and a restraint and a tolerance under provocation, which means while you're being provoked, you can hold it. And this is speaking about people that you love. This is speaking about people that you know. So even when you are provoked, you don't respond by blaming them and then holding that thing against them. The Bible says we are to release those people while they're doing the very things they're doing from judgment and we bear it. You think, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty harsh. But if I remember, there was a fellow who was dying on a cross, who while he was being crucified, turns to his father and says, forgive them because I don't know what they're doing. Now, if he's an example to us, let, let's not keep that example stuck with him. okay? Because we have this tendency to say how holy and perfect Jesus was, but that, you know what? He's a lamb of God. He's a spotless lamb of God. He was perfectly holy. That can't possibly relate to me. I can't possibly do that. But if you're born again this morning, if you've put your trust in him, my advice to you is, and what the scriptures tell you is, is that yes, you can. And in fact, yes, that's the judgment that God has for us. That's the expectation that the Lord has for us. And what ends up happening with too many people that I've seen in my life is that they hold so many grudges against people that they believe have wronged them during their life that they drag those things around with them for the rest of their lives and they become baggage. I've seen plenty of people in bondage because people either fail to accept the decisions that they themselves have made in their lives and they look for someone to blame and so what ends up happening is they hold grudges, bitterness, malice, and even hatred against certain people in their lives, and they break the relationship with them as a result. Somehow blaming others for things in their life releases them from having to say, I was wrong, and I have to wear the consequences of it. But this is no release. This is bondage. You see, if you look at the brothers and the situation that they were in, being three days simmering in a, in a, uh, probably a cooped up place, um, they looked at themselves and they said, this is happening to us because of what we did. So that you'd think, all right, that's actually not a bad, they're, they're looking at it and saying they're taking responsibility for what they did 20 years ago. And, and I would suspect carrying that burden for 20 years wouldn't have been easy for the brothers too, because their father clearly blamed them 
for it. Even though he didn't know all the finer details about what they had done to him, he blamed them because he sent his son to go and find them in the middle of who knows where. And so did Jacob blame himself for sending his son in the middle of nowhere by himself? No, he blamed his sons. And in turn, they had to blame or they had to look for someone to blame. But they're in a situation where, okay, they're in this place and there are plenty of culprits they could have actually pointed the finger at and I no doubt would have come up in their conversations that were easy targets. Do you remember how much of a pain they thought Joseph was to them? Do you remember the dreams that Joseph had where he said, oh yeah, I had a dream about, you know, wheat sheaves and, and all of your sheaves bowed down to mine. Oh yeah, okay. And then he has another dream about, you know, the stars and the moon bowing down to him. And his brothers obviously disliked him because he was the favorite of their father. No doubt they could have, they would have, the thing would have probably said, oh, come on, he probably deserved what he got. He was, don't you remember what a pain he was? Don't you remember that he, that he, he's dobbed us into dad by telling dad when he sent us out the first, when he sent him to come and spy on us, that he told dad that we weren't looking after the sheep properly. No doubt they would have looked to, to Joseph maybe as a culprit in the whole thing saying he deserved it and what he got. Or how about dad? You could blame dad. Dad sent us here. You know, we wouldn't have been here in the situation if dad hadn't sent us here. And look, he sent us except for Benjamin, his new favorite. He never loved us the same way he loved Joseph. And now he doesn't love us the same way he loves Benjamin. He obviously has favorites. He doesn't care about us, but he cares about them. And then there's this Zaphnath Penea guy mind you he was speaking he wasn't speaking canaanite to them he was speaking egyptian he was talking to them through an interpreter so that they, they wouldn't have understood any anything he was saying anyway how rude was that guy all we did was come to buy grain he's, he's selling it to everyone else and, and we arrive thought, what's different about us and now he's accusing us of being spies how dare he accuse us of being spies obviously the guy's racist You know, there are many things people blame others for. Instead of releasing them from judgment, and many people hold on to those judgments about those people, even though most of the time they don't even have enough information to prove it. But they need someone to blame. And that has a terrible result on relationships. Because I'll tell you now, if you're holding on to secret blame and judgment on other people, let me ask you a question. Can you actually honestly love that person properly? You can't. The answer to that is an emphatic no. You can't love someone that you're holding stuff against. Unless you forgive them, you cannot love them. That's the honest truth. When you hold secret blame to other people or on other people, you cannot love them the way we've, you've been commanded to love them by the Lord. That's why the Bible tells us to forgive. Because if you don't forgive, that person cannot, that can no longer be loved by you. You will do only the minimum of what's required for that person. 
You will not go out of your way. You will not consume extra energy or grace or ask for more grace to love that person as the Lord asks you to love them. You will find ways to put that person or park that person in a corner somewhere and then leave them there to simmer because you've got other more important people to be hanging around with, people who love you. But that's not what we're called to do. You see, the reason we do that is that we need to protect our own ego. We hold people to blame because if we don't blame them, then who does the blame go to? It goes to us. And we would rather condemn someone and put them to the side rather than condemn myself and have to deal with that myself. And that is 90% of people who, part of the things that I've seen, 90% of them are people who just cannot take responsibility for their own decisions or just can't forgive the wrongs of other people. So please, don't protect your own ego. It's not worth it. Because by protecting your own ego, by protecting yourself and your self-worth and, and, uh, and, and your own image in your own eyes, that is called self-deification. That is what the Bible calls idol worship. And we are more prone to, to make an idol of ourselves than anyone else in the world or anything else. We become an idol to ourselves. And in doing that, we, can, we become our own God and then we condemn others by judging them. Because they won't bow down to us the way we like to be worshipped. So please do not put your relationships and sacrifice them on the altar of your own God, yourself. Do you hold a secret condemnation against someone else this morning? Even if they were 100% wrong? And please forgive them. Please. Because if you don't, you will carry that for the rest of your life. And if you don't forgive them, it will stop you from loving them. And it will stop and it will hinder your relationship with Christ, who does love them. Please consider this beautiful act that the Bible says or describes as forgiveness. It, it releases not only them from judgment, but it will release you as well from having to carry that for the rest of your life. So please free yourself and free them and open yourself up to being able to love again. Okay, Ephesians 4.32. This is one more thing, just to emphasize this point, which I'm going, which I've finished with now. Ephesians 4.32 tells us, and be ye kind one to another. Kind tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Okay? So carry those two verses around with you. Meditate on those verses. Colossians 3.13 and Ephesians 4.32. And let's live more like our Savior, who forgave people even in, in the middle of them, killing him for what he didn't deserve. Okay. And that brings us back to where the brothers find themselves at this particular point. On their way home with their, with their uh, donkeys loaded up with grain and Simeon back in Egypt being held in custody, trying to work out, all right, because Joseph had released them and he sent them all home except for Simeon. And they're trying to work out now, all right, two things we've got to do. What's the plan going to be? 
how are we going to get Simeon back? How are we going to convince dad to, to give us Benjamin to go and send to Egypt when he didn't want to do that in the first place? And how are we going to explain to dad what's happened? And so in verse 27, it says there, and as one of them opened his sack and gave his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money. For behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored. And lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done to us? You know, one of the things that a guilty conscience or a condemning heart carries with it is an inability to see the good that's been done to you. You know, people have a tendency to see the bad, always. You may have 10 good things that happen to you, but one bad thing, and what's your focus going to be on? The bad one. What's God doing to me? Now, mind you, they went to buy grain. They got the grain. So the, the donkeys are filled with grain. They're on their way back home. They got what they wanted for. All right, Simeon's back in Egypt. They have to work that one out. But now one of the brothers finds the money that was meant to buy the grain still in his bag. So instead of saying, praise the Lord, the money's back. What do they think? Oh, we're in big trouble now. And they became afraid. So one of the, one of the, one of the things that a guilty heart or a condemning heart carries with it is an inability to see when something good has been done to you. So instead, instead of like you imagine others are always trying to take advantage of you. You're imagining that all people are always trying to kill you or always trying to do something wrong to you. You're always suspicious of everyone's actions. And this is what the brothers immediately saw. When one of the brothers opened up his sack and found money there, someone had obviously put the money in there. But why? Was it because they, they liked them and they were doing something nice to them, which is actually what happened? No. Someone planted this money here to incriminate us. So they're going to throw us all back in jail and we're all going to die. We're all gone here. By having seen the money in their sack, they became afraid as to what was going on and who was to blame? Look at who they blamed. What's the Lord doing to us? He says, what's God doing to us here? Why, what, what's, what's he done? They began to blame God for this turn of events, thinking the absolute worst. They automatically imagined that something bad was happening and God was the culprit in the whole thing. They could never have imagined that this guy, Zafnath Pania, would have been generous to them because he was rude to them. Accusing them of holding, you know, of being spies and everything. And meanwhile, he's got Simeon actually, you know, in ransom there. Instead of being open to the idea that someone had actually done good for them or that somehow the Lord was in it, blessing them, or that somehow the Lord was working in the background, they became more distressed at what they saw. Remember what they were saying when they were with Joseph? They believed that this was happening to them because of God's judgment. So everything they saw as a result of it was God's judging us. God's judging us. But is God judging them? No, God's actually working to bless them 
The reason they, they saw Joseph was because God was, was blessing them. The reason, the whole reason that Joseph was in that place was because God was not only blessing Joseph and overlooking the things they'd done to him, but he was about to bless their whole family because of Joseph. But they couldn't see the bigger picture here. All they saw was what was happening to them right in front of them at that particular time. And so they blamed God. And it was only a few small steps to get there. What, the, what had happened to the brothers was that they had lost faith in the goodness and the providence of their God. Do you hear them talking about God here, apart from blaming him? No. They can only imagine evil coming upon them because they had a guilty conscience. And so everything was seen through the lens of my guilt and God's doing this to me because of that. Instead of seeing God as their redeemer, their provider, the one who loves them and cares for them, they only saw God now as their judge. There's no mention here of them praying to him, Lord, save us. There's no mention of them saying, Lord, please guide us and help us. No mention at all. Now, these guys are simply rattled by what's going on. And they're looking for someone to accuse. And it must be God who's doing this to us because he's paying us back for what we did all those years ago. But do you see, once again, this is a response of the flesh. Not a response from the spirit. This wasn't a response. This wasn't God who was, who was leading in this direction. This was their own guilt. And the, their own guilt was causing them to hide from God. Do you remember Adam and Eve when they first sinned? What did they end up doing? They hid themselves. They didn't go to God and say, God, we've made a massive mistake. Please save us. No, no, no. They went and hid in the bushes. And then they tried to cover themselves up. And so the, the, the brothers here, they're finding themselves in this mess. Don't go to God. Because of their guilt, they ran away from him and began accusing him for what was going on. This has fallen human nature again. Do you remember who Adam blamed when he sinned? Actually, both. He blamed more than one. In one sentence, he said, the woman that you gave me. So, so Adam, after he sinned, having a guilty conscience, now didn't just blame the woman. He blamed God at the same time for his circumstances. The woman you gave me. Lord, I don't know. It's ultimately your fault. Ultimately. You let the devil get in the actual garden, didn't you, Lord? You knew what was going on. You knew about him, but you let him do that. You gave me this woman knowing she'd be a complete headache to me. Did I ask for her? Well, he did check out every animal before and he said, no, nah, I don't like any of them. You know, when you're in the middle of a tribulational trial in your life and you're carrying guilt of some kind, you often look for someone else, not only to blame, including the Lord, but you, the tendency is to run away from God. The tendency is to hide from God, not to come to him. Because you either look for someone to blame because you then become God yourself. But oftentimes we run from the Lord 
rather than run to him. You know, but if you're a child of God and you and you have bad things happen to you, please don't assume the worst. Don't assume that God doesn't love you anymore. Don't assume that things have gone wrong because, you know, God's judging you somehow and, you know, you're paying for a sin that you did in, you know, 1995 or something like that. And, you know, I think I remember why this is happening to me now. The Bible tells us that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are called, called according to his purpose. And that's all things, all refers not only to the good things that happen in our lives, but to all the bad things that happen in our lives. Even those things that, um, that we would rather not have in our lives actually all have a tendency to be leading us in a particular direction because God's allowing it to happen. Even the bad things. And even the bad things that were happening to the brothers now is because God's orchestrated it so he could ultimately save the whole family. You see, they couldn't see it because they're in the middle of it. And often we don't see what's happening in our lives and the, and the plan that's got, that God's got for our lives because all we see is the circumstance that I'm facing right now. And then we look at that and we're so short-sighted because we can't see any plan that's going on. But see, that's where faith comes into it, isn't it? I may be going through a valley at the moment, but God's got, God knows exactly what's coming up the other side. And he's got plans to bless us, not to curse us, to do good to us, not to do bad to us. And the brothers had lost this particular thought. They had lost faith. You know, the Bible tells that all things work together for good. And if I, want, I want you to think about the life of Jesus. How many good things happened to him during his life? Huh? I mean, that, when you read the Gospels, it's a bed of roses, isn't it? Beautiful. You know, all the, all the, the, just all the things the disciples didn't understand even as they were walking to jerusalem on his final day after three years of being together they still didn't understand that he had to die for the sins of the world and when he came presented himself to his own people and they rejected him he's got pharisees sadducees lawyers scribes and everyone else conspiring against him to destroy him and kill him then he's falsely accused and everything else but all those things, all those bad things that happened to our, our Saviour were all working towards a good. They were all working towards our salvation, the resurrection, the beginning of the church, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the fulfilment of God's promises. And you and me adopted into God's family and saved. Now we can rejoice today because of what he went through. But the question is, how do we respond when we go through those, those bad things? We know our Saviour didn't have a place to rest his head during his ministry. He was misunderstood and rejected, and yet he continued, and he didn't open his mouth. I want to share with you something. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Acts 8.32 says, the place of the scripture which he read, this was the Ethiopian when he was uh, reading from the Bible with, um, with Philip. 
The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. Is that fair enough? Who's that speaking about? Jesus, right? You will know it. So Jesus came as the Lamb of God, the perfect one. He came as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb, dumb. He didn't talk. He didn't complain. He didn't, he didn't um, object. And this only applies to Jesus, right? This only applies to Jesus? No, it doesn't. We might think, oh, only he was called to be the lamb. Only he was called to bear our, all of our sins. I'm not called to bear anyone else's sins. I'm not called to carry anyone else, am I? I'm not called to live a life where I'm rejected. I'm not called to live a life where I continually try to help people, but they reject me and hate me instead. No, no, I'm not called to that life. It's only for Jesus that that was meant to happen. I'm not called to carry other people's burdens. No, not us. No, no, the, the, the agreement I've entered into with the Lord is that he has to bless me in my life completely. I can't have anything bad happen to me. I can't have people around me that are unloving to me or that make mistakes and sin around me. I'm not called to carry all of them, am I? Of course we are. Of course. Jesus was a lamb that was led to the slaughter and as a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Just a few verses down. Romans 8, 35, verse 36 and 37. So let me tell you, if you are a believer this morning, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Because Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? No. Or famine? No. Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? No. As it is written, for thy sake, for his sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So who are the sheep for the slaughter? We are. You are. And are we called to raise our voices and to condemn those around us when they make a mistake around us? Or are we called to carry them? Are you going through tribulation? Are you going through distress? Have you experienced any persecution? Have you experienced a famine? Are you naked this morning? You're going through a, a point where you're attacked, where your life is in danger, or where you're, you're being physically attacked for simply being a believer in Christ? I suspect that almost none of us are. But whatever it is you're going through, it doesn't hold a candle to what he went through. And if he was a lamb to the slaughter, if he was a sheep to the slaughter, and he lived a life of absolute grace and love, and that's what we were being called to live as well. This is what our lives are called to when we are saved. The Lord, we know, has all things working together for good, especially through the sufferings that we experience. So look for the lesson that God has for you. 
Whatever years you're going through, whatever struggle you've had, whatever, whatever bad experiences you've had from other people, look for the lesson. Look for where to love. Look for the path that God has for you in that particular place or time because you need to trust that God has the, an ultimately good purpose for you. And at the end, he will glorify himself through your life. The brothers were heading home, feeling worse than ever. What were they going to tell their dad? Look at Genesis 42, 29, as we wrap this thing up. Genesis 42, 29. They arrive home after what I would suspect was a very, very long trip. And they came unto Jacob, their father, unto the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell unto them, saying, the man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. And we said unto him, we are true men. We are no spies. We be 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is not. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country said unto us, hereby shall I know that you are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me and take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that ye are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver you your brother, and ye shall traffic in the land. Which means they can do business in the land. Okay? Do you remember what their dad had told them at the beginning of this chapter? He said, don't just stand around there just looking at each other. You know who was looking around at each other as well? He was too now. What do you say? He's lost another son, stuck in Egypt now. And now they've asked for his other son, the one he didn't want to send. And look at verse 35. Now it gets even worse. And it came to pass as they emptied their sacks and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid, the whole lot of them. It wasn't just one brother that he that had the money. The whole lot of them had all their money still in their bags. And now they were all afraid. It wasn't just one. It wasn't just them. Have you ever noticed that fear catches? Have you ever noticed it's actually contagious? And when someone starts screaming, I don't know, do you start screaming as well? When someone's afraid of something, it's natural to catch the fear. It's natural to catch something of it. Um, but what ends up happening is that you end up falling into a hole with that person as well. Fear can become endemic. It causes people who would be otherwise stable and rational to do irrational things. It, people have done and made decisions that are often so based on fear and they don't realize it, okay, that they end up falling into a hole. If you wonder whether this is true or not, have a look at what happens to the stock market when some people start panicking and sell off. The whole lot of them start selling off and then the whole thing goes into a ditch. Um, politics, wonderful example of how fear catches. We just had an election. Fear is a wonderful tool to motivate people. It's fantastic. It's one of the most powerful motivators you can think of. 
Okay, and if you look at most advertisements for every political party, it's about scaring someone else into what someone else is going to do to you. Okay, that's how it works. Look at the shootings in the US. Look at doomsday preppers. Look at groups that fit, that prey on the fears of others to take advantage of them. Look at the look at the common newspaper articles. Look at the headlines. Right. No one ever reads a boring headline, do they? No, but you'll look at a, a sensational one, won't you? One that says, the end of the world is coming. Or, you know when they say a comet's about to pass? They don't say a comet's, you know, going to... The, the title doesn't say a comet's passing one million miles away. Comet heading for the Earth. It gets people's attention. But fear catches. And it's the same thing marketers use on other people to motivate them to buy their stuff as well. You know, Jacob had, he, was, he had told his sons, go down. He didn't have any fear. He had fear for, for, for losing Benjamin, but he'd fallen for this fear. His sons were, were scared and now he caught that bug. And Jacob himself then loses all hope. He loses faith in God. He doesn't say, now take it easy, boys. You know, I'm sure God's got some of the control. God loves us and he'll find, he'll find a way for it. He doesn't say that. He fears as well. Look at verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have you bereaved of my children. He blamed them now. We're back to the blame game again. Okay? Me have you bereaved of my children. Joseph is not and Simeon is not. And, and you will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. This is a guy who's lost all hope. And has now turned on the other sons and saying, this is your fault. The same thing they were doing. It was too much for him. This probably all brought up the loss of Joseph all over again, which he blamed them for as well. And now with Simeon gone, he was not only heartbroken, but out of faith as well. He took his eyes off the Lord. He was blinded by his circumstances and he couldn't see any light in front of him. And Reuben, to his credit, comes up and says, Dad, leave it with me. But look how he says it. Genesis 42, 37, And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. Oh, that's a really good one there, Reuben. You know, offering his father to slay his own two sons if he didn't bring Simeon back. Jacob was already down, broken hearted because he lost two sons. And now your solution is to say, I'll kill a couple of your grandkids as well. Leave it with me. You can kill my two sons if you want. You know, no problem, Dad. I'll, I'll take care of the whole thing. Yeah, that would really comfort uh, a grieving father's heart to say, kill your grandchildren too if I don't get the job done. But he wouldn't, I suppose, if he couldn't save Simeon by going back and maybe losing Benjamin, he probably would have lost his own life, huh? He wouldn't have come back to see his own two kids getting killed. Wonderful offer, Reuben. And probably the wrong timing as well. Didn't give his chance, daddy's chance even to calm down. And how does Jacob respond to this wonderful offer of uh, Reuben? 
he says, and he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way, in the way ye go, ye sh uh, then shall you bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to the grave. In other words, I'm going to be dead. If Benjamin dies, I'm gone. See the grey hairs? They'll be, in a gr they'll be in the grave as well if, if one of you dies. So all of this talk of death and fear and uncertainty and anguish and blaming everyone else is a terrible place to be. And it's a terrible place to finish an actual sermon. Which is why I don't want to finish right here. I'm going to, have to give you a few more verses because I want to end on a really positive note. Because even though Reuben offers this, this wonderful solution, which is really no solution at all, um, look at what happens after. Look at, look at verse chapter 43 now. And look and read verses 1 to 10 with me. Because this time Judah steps up. Genesis 43, 1. And the famine was sore in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn. So this is not just another day after. This is a little while after. When they had eaten up the corn, which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto him, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. And Israel said, Wherefore doubt ye so ill with me, as to tell the man whether ye had yet a brother? And they said, The man asked us straightly of our state and of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have ye another brother? And we told him, according to the tenor of these words, What could we, um, sorry, could we certainly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said unto Israel his father, Listen to these words, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him, if I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee. Then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned a second time. You see the difference between Reuben's offer and Judah's? Judah says, I'll take his place. I'll bear the blame. They're about to run out of food. And Jacob had conveniently, for, conveniently forgotten about the, the request that, um, that Joseph had wanted to see the younger son. Maybe he feigned ignorance. But now Judah steps up and he shows leadership and he says, I'll bear it. I'll take this on. I'll bear the blame if we can't get him back to you. And so, did his father trust him? He did. His father trusted him. And he said, okay, take, and we'll look at that next week, and we'll see this whole, this whole picture of how Judah becomes pivotal in this, in this particular matter. But Judah was willing to sacrifice himself for his brethren. May I remind you that Revelation 5.5 5 says, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book 
and to loose the seals, the seven seals thereof. There is a, a line of Judah who put up his hand to bear all the blame. And he bore it and he took it to a cross for you and me. God didn't say, I'm going to sacrifice an angel. He didn't say, I'm going to sacrifice someone else. Now, the Bible tells us that God provided himself as the offering. He said, I'll take it. And that's the God that we serve. We serve a God who put himself, he bore it all himself. And Jesus is that manifestation of this wonderful God that we serve. He didn't blame us. He didn't stay bitter against us. He didn't hold it against us forever. Yet he found a way to redeem us. So we have a lot to be thankful for this morning, for our wonderful Saviour, because he is the Lion of Judah, and he took the responsibility for us. But not only this, this morning, if you're saved this morning by the grace of God, then you have now also been called to stand up like Judah. To stand up like him and say, I'll take that responsibility. I'll bear that. I'll be the one to be counted. To willingly give ourselves that God might be glorified. Not be motivated by fear. Not to be motivated by hatred. Not to be stuck in the past or blaming others for our circumstances but to be people who are bold, forgiving, merciful, kind, courageous, full of faith in God, not giving up hope because where you are with him, there is always hope and he is always working things out for our good and for his glory. So God has called us to be bold, to be courageous, to be full of faith, looking where he has organized works for us to walk in. The Lord commanded Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be intimidated by your circumstances. Look to me and not to the things of this world. And that's who God has called us to look to this morning. Look to him. God bless you. Thank you.